0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, when most people think about losing weight, they think about the details of a diet plan, what food to eat, how much of it to eat, and when to eat it. What they don't spend enough time working on are the mental and emotional habits that can sabotage their efforts regardless of the diet plan they adopt. That's why my guests say, despite being a biochemist, has made mindset the foundation of his approach to losing weight. His name is Dr. Trevor Kasche, and he's the founder of Trevor Kasche Nutrition, or TKN. We begin a conversation with a thumbnail of Trevor's unique background, which includes earning his first university degree in biochemistry at age 17, setting national records in powerlifting and coaching an Olympic fight team, as well as how he went from coaching elite athletes to helping average folks lose weight. We then talk about why Trevor focuses on bridging the gap between knowledge and action and the erroneous assumptions people make that keep them from following through on their intentions. From there, we turn to the phases TKN takes its clients through, which begins with getting what Trevor calls food clarity. We discuss how simply tracking what you eat can get you to naturally change your diet because something called the Hawthorne effect, it can almost be all you need to do to start losing weight. We then get into how to deal with your hunger when you're cutting calories and why it's crucial to be decisive about it. We also discuss how you can eventually eat more once you work on eating less, how to manage the expectation of consistent weight loss, and why you really need to weigh yourself every week. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash cashy. All right, Trevor Kashi, welcome to the show. Hello. So you are a nutrition consultant, but you have a very interesting background to how you got to this point. And the way I discovered you is I we interviewed Michael Easter for the Comfort Crisis, and he had a whole chapter about you. Tell us about your background. How did you you start off in the world of biochemistry, and now you help people with their nutrition? How did that happen?
1: Oh, whew. okay. I can I can have like a like this 30 second life story thing. And then, and then talk a little bit about philosophy. Does that make sense? Sure. That sounds that great. Up? Okay. Yeah. So I, I can start back from like, as, as a little dude where like people talk about their first words, typically it's like mommy and and mine was why, 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 why. And uh, it, that eventually just, I, I had this sort of curious scientific sort of ilk forever. And, it I noticed, or somebody noticed, my mother mo- noticed when a lot of little kids, specifically little boys, they like wanted to be X-Men for Halloween. I think X-Men became a pretty popular franchise in the 90s, right? They wanted to be X-Men, and I was like, how did they inject the metal into his bones? <laughs> and I was that weird kid. And somewhere along the line, I ended up like skipping grades and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And one of the mentors that I had very early on in my life had a connection to the local college. And in the local college, I got started at a very young age and Professor Tui, my mentor there, had some friends over at Translational Genomics. So I ended up getting some laboratory experience at a very young age, specifically in the realm of non-small cell lung cancer. They also did neurogenomics, stuff like that too. And... Along this time, I think I was in the, you know, 14, 15-ish range, my father got back into my life and my father had a big interest in fitness and bodybuilding, et cetera. And so I started combining my sort of obsessive scientific nature with the application of things like bodybuilding and strength sports with my father, because we had very few things to bond over. And that led to me doing like my first physique contest at age 15 and, I really ended up enjoying that process since, and I ended up continuing on with my scientific ilk into graduate school. So I finished my first degree in biochemistry, and I started my doctoral degree in biochemistry studying, for the most part, things like the, the oxidation reduction components of vitamin K. And during that time, I transitioned from bodybuilding over to strength sports, and because of the different sort of demand, different sport, wanted to try new things, et cetera, and what ended up happening, I did okay on on the regional and national level for strength sports, and got involved in the in that community, and the background I had science wise, as well as how I performed on the field, so to speak, ended up generating a lot of conversations with the other athletes, and that kind of started this whole process of how do we combine these two things to help people accomplish the things they want to accomplish. And it started in the athletic realm. And it ended up getting to a point to where the demands on my time grew greater than the time that I had. Mm -hmm. And so I regrettably ended up like having to distinguish between the people who wanted some advice by like, well, I guess this kind of became a business all on its own, I guess. And somewhere along that line, I ended up getting recruited by the Azerbaijani government and acted as a physiologist for them for their fight sports, specifically for the Rio de Janeiro Olympics. So I lived overseas in a cave for a while and I came back a little over a year later, you know, back and forth, et cetera, and ended up, up, I guess, I ended up stateside. I wanted to find that word. (laughs) And then operated out of a strength and conditioning facility in Florida. And that gave me greater exposure to the quote general population. And here we can kind of start the story in terms of philosophy where how did this go from working with high level athletes to working with quote general population? And what we come to notice or TCAN operates as if people, for the most part, kind of already have a good enough understanding. Of how to eat and move in a constructive way. And the trouble comes with turning that knowledge into action. So, for that reason, we focus very little energy on telling people what to do and more energy on helping people to understand the options they have so that they can make the most constructive decisions for themselves. And so, we call it bridging the intention intervention gap. So, people have an idea of what to do, they have an idea of what they want, and we help bring those two things together. And so, in a practical way, this means trivializing what to eat and when and instead shining the spotlights on, well, with the facts as we know them, how do I best manage my thoughts, feelings, and emotions or my thoughts, feelings, and actions so I can get closer to what I want?
0: Does that make sense? That makes sense. Okay, so... So, okay, so it sounds like you're taking, okay, you, you're using your knowledge about with biochemistry and you can apply that. I mean, that's what nutrition is, it's biochemistry, yes. but you don't, with your, with the general population, you're not focusing on, well, we got to eat this carbs, fats. You're not thinking about that. It's more, like, that's, that's in there, but it's more, you're thinking about the human body is not just a body, but there's a psychological part to it as well that you have to understand.
1: Yes, exactly. So the biochemistry, just like in real life, <laughs> operates in the background. And we focus more on the foreground here, which has to do with, well, what am I thinking? How do I feel? And how do those things combine to influence the decisions I make? And the biochemistry happening in the background, we just kind of weave
0: into the programming as we go. Okay, that makes sense. So let, let's, start, let's start with this question. So why do you think your approach works? I guess you're calling it the well, Trevor Cashy method or the Cashy method. And we'll get into the details of that. Like, Well, maybe that's not. Why do most people, when they say, okay, I want to lose weight... Right. That's why most people, when they start thinking about their food consciously, they're thinking about, well, I need to do that so I can lose weight. So they typically think, oh, I gotta go on a diet. Right. Yeah. So I gotta reduce calories. There's high, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do paleo, high fat. But you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Studies and I think personal experience can show mm. this as well. I think it's like 95% of all diets, they fail. So what are they doing? Why do diets fail? What's going? What are the erroneous assumptions that people have about nutrition and losing weight thanks to popular diets?
1: I, I, get, I get chills hearing that question for a couple of reasons, a little bit out of fear and a little bit out of excitement. Great question. I love it. And I kind of want to start it with saying something that has the potential to sort of inflame a little bit. However, I do think it leads us to a more constructive outcome. I find it curious that diets in the abstract do the failing. So I'll just lay that out there. Mm, okay. That even the language as we use it, diets fail. And I find that interesting because diets as they stand, you know, they represent themselves as an abstract concept. So to expand that a little bit, if 95% of diets fail, they do the failing. Then does that mean the 5% of diets do the succeeding? And that? Leaves very little room for us humans to do anything. So, I kind of want to start there in the context of like, what role do we play in the success and failure rather than describing it in the context of the diet having a success and failure? And by focusing on the role that we play, we have the largest chance of making a difference in the long term. So, presuming the efficacy of a diet, notwithstanding like, you know, carbohydrate, fat, protein, vegetables, timing, all that sort of stuff. So that sort of efficacy notwithstanding. And then moving on to your erroneous assumption language, which I like, people make three, I think, to use your language, erroneous assumptions that increase the failure rate of most, maybe all things we do. And so we can cherry pick and say, well, studies say 95% of diets fail, but you know what? I'll bet a dollar that 95% or more of all projects, if you'd like, have similar or even greater failure rates. (laughs) And so we may inflate the importance of diets because of their presumed benefits on our physiology and presumed benefits on our social status, but we really swim in examples of people that have folders and files and garages and attics and mental spaces filled with projects that put on the back burner or save for later or whatever. And so these situations, I think that the failed diet and the unfinished project they have similar if identical constructs to them and we just use the word fail for one and i think that adds different implications
0: does that make sense that makes sense so they, it's like the knowledge intention gap that you talked about earlier
1: yes yes and so to to go going back to your to the erroneous assumptions i think we mainly have 3 and they they base around us ourselves we make erroneous assumptions about ourselves We make erroneous assumptions about other people, and then we make erroneous assumptions about the situation at large. And they have sort of this demanding, perfectionistic sort of air to them, where I must be perfect and do things perfectly, erroneous assumption one. Erroneous assumption two, others must treat me well, and erroneous assumption three, life must be fair. And so to answer your question of what erroneous assumptions do people make, I think, Well, people can combine language in ways to make all the erroneous assumptions, an unlimited amount of them. But when we take a step back, failure and emotional disturbance and somewhat comically disturbance about that disturbance where people get mad because they're mad, sad because they're sad, et cetera, largely come from the expectations they place on themselves, other people, and the environment. Does that
0: make sense? That makes sense. Okay. So I can see this. Okay. The perfection aspect. I think everyone's experienced that moment. They're like, well, yeah. I'm on a diet. I'm going to be really good. And then they go to a restaurant, they go to Chili's and they have an awesome blossom. And they're like, well, well might as well just go ahead and have the, uh, the, what's the, the, the volcano chocolate volcano.
1: <laughs> I, I like where your head's at. Right. keep going.
0: Okay. So that, there's that, that perfections. If, if you can't do, or if you I mean, say you're doing like paleo, it's like if I don't do like, if I, if I eat any like thing that's like a caveman couldn't eat, then it's not worth doing. Right. Yes. Um, yep. and that can just so that, get yeah. in the way of you actually making progress. So that's like that perfection thing.
1: Yes. And so that sort of perfectionistic demand we place on ourselves gives us this, this leverage point to give ourselves permission to act against our self-interests. And so from a schematic standpoint, it ends up to work out something like, I must eat perfect where perfect might encompass, like I must eat paleo, I must, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll just call it eating perfectly where we define perfect as whatever plan that person has, right? I must eat perfect or else. And so when when you put these demands on yourself or demands on your diet, et cetera, et cetera, unless we meet our own demands perfectly or the external circumstances meet our demands perfectly. We get to trigger this sort of, or else mechanic in our brains where we can say, I must eat perfectly or else I may as well just give up and do nothing and hit myself forever. And I'm a stupid dummy head. <laughs> so yeah. from the perfectionistic standpoint, it, it, it lends itself towards a sort of black and white thinking where we sabotage ourselves.
0: And, and how do other people get in the way like there are assumptions about it, well, our assumptions about other people. Because Okay, I can see the assumptions about circumstance, like life needs to be fair, right? Because I think everyone's like, well, this diet will work if these certain circumstances are in place. But if something goes off kilter, like I have a bad day at work, mm-hmm. kids are up throwing up at two o'clock in the morning, you know, I, I I couldn't maintain my diet, and like it's just going to throw everything off. Mm. I can see, I've seen that happen in my own life, and people. Again, this happen, This can happen to other projects in our life, not yes. just nutrition, but with the social component. What's going on there?
1: So, for instance, it could be something like they must accept me, or else. And in this gotcha. case, the or else tends to raise stress levels, cause some emotional disturbance, which some people try to deal with by doing things like eating.
0: Okay, that makes sense, and,
1: and so that is how it, it ends up relating in a in a rather direct way. People end up using eating as a as a consumptive behavior to distract from disturbances that they get from placing demands on others. For instance,
0: it's a stress reliever.
1: Yes, well, it's a distractor, I think a distractor.
0: And so, I mean, that's one of the your big things you are trying to tackle. You are trying to help people understand why they eat? Because I think we often think, well, you eat because you're hungry. Mm. But you would say, mm. well, <laughs> are, really? Are you really hungry when you, you ate that you know bag of m ms Yes. Yeah.
1: In a lot of instances, we we take cues from our environment or the thoughts we have as permission to eat for whatever reason. It could be the time of day. It could be the room we have put ourselves in. It could be an interaction we had. And sometimes it aligns with hunger and sometimes not.
0: Let's dig into your method. I think high level, I think people that kind of understand what you're, you're probably going to do is you want people to think, develop a better relationship with their nutrition and think about the psychological factors, not just the the physiological factors that go into it. Mm. And in this first part, you know, when you, when you take on a client, you start working with them, you go through this. There's a phase too. There's a process. And this first part, you call it the goal is to help your client develop food clarity. What do you mean by that? And what goes on during this phase when you first start working with somebody?
1: So I use the term food clarity as sort of like a like front-end language, so that when people look us up and they read about it, it I have some terminology that that people can can kind of sink their teeth into a little bit. And it, in short, it, it really means that people make a lot of assumptions about what they do. And they make demands based off of those assumptions and can upset themselves or sabotage themselves when the results they get deviate from the demands they make. Okay, so that's a fancy way of saying, I'm eating so little, but I keep getting fatter. Therefore, I get to be mad, et cetera. And so when it comes to food clarity, I use that term to represent a whole manner of things. And in this context, it has to do with well, what foods do I eat? When do I eat them? And how, if at all, does that impact the way that I think, how I feel, and what I do? And does it have necessarily a causal relationship? No. It more just serves to raise an awareness to what you currently do. And when you raise a real awareness to what you currently do, then you can make more informed decisions about what to do next. And so TKN positions themselves there to say, OK, we have gathered all of this information. How do we make the best use of it? And we call that first part food clarity, because one of the first things that we suggest people do, we, we suggest Just keep all, just keep track of the stuff you currently do. Because I think when, I think when a lot of people join programs or start diets or fitness or whatever, they just kind of jump right into whatever directions that the program gives them. They try and turn their life upside down and conform to whatever those rules are immediately. And I just, quite frankly, could give a damn about that stuff. I care more about what you do right now. Because if we have an operational understanding of what you do right now, well then we can take what you currently do, stabilize that day to day. And now we have a baseline in which we can make some legitimate changes.
0: Gotcha. So this this basically is like you're going to start measuring measuring what you actually eat. Because a lot of people don't even know. Yes. They just sort of like when they take a serving yeah. of something, they don't know like how much is in that. Like they have no clue.
1: Yeah. So I I really under most circumstances, could care less about that. You have to eat three ounces of spinach or 42 grams of peanut butter or whatever. I more care that you have an idea of what you currently do at this very moment day to day, because then you could go, oh, that makes sense. Where do we go from here? Or I already know where to go from here, because now I have this information I can use to my advantage versus operating off of these
0: assumptions. No. Yeah. Like measuring your food. I, I, I do that. And when I started doing it a couple years ago, one thing you learn right away is like, you're surprised that your, your assumptions of what is, what counts as a serving Mm -hmm. is completely off. So I'm sure this has happened with people. They're like, you know, I don't eat that much. Like I had uh, some toast with a serving of peanut butter, but it's like, have you actually seen, seen what a serving of peanut butter is? Like what you think is a serving (laughs) of peanut butter? Is not a serving of peanut butter. It's actually (laughs) really- to feel insulted. It's it's really depressing to see what a (laughs) serving of peanut butter is.
1: Yeah. Yep. I agree. And once you have an understanding of what this means in real life, well, then it helps you to inform your decisions in real life. Versus here are the assumptions I make in my brain. And because of the assumptions I make in my brain, here are the demands I expect of the results. And when those things deviate from each other, people tend to say things like, screw it. Right?
0: right? Why I bother? I yeah. can't
1: stand it anymore. This diet doesn't work, etc., etc.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display, and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90 the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. It's easy. There's no cooking, there's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to, to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. And what's interesting to you, so in this point, you're not, you're not telling people to make any changes in their, their nutrition. You're just saying, just measure Hell no. what you're actually eating. Yep. But there's a principle from psychology, I think it's called the Hawthorne effect, yes. right? Yes, yes. So what's, tell us about the Hawthorne effect and how just measuring stuff can actually change behavior and just by just nature, by nat- just naturally.
1: okay. So if you could see me, you could see my steeple fingers like Mr. Burns. Uh, (laughs) So I think how this happens matters less than it does happen. So I will just go out there and say that I care about the utility more than the mechanism at this point. Although we can use a somewhat rational theory to guess about what's going on. So strictly speaking, I think the addition of tracking to what you normally do changes, strictly speaking, again, nothing about other behaviors. However... Asterisk, asterisk, monitoring yourself presents a unique change of behavior all on its own because it creates awareness of your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in general. And so people can use the information they get from monitoring their behavior to influence the way they make decisions. I like to explain it this way: how many people see a police officer and then slow down, even if they go, like, even if they they drive within the speed limit? I do it all. I think the time. practically everybody does that. Yes. And so does seeing the police officer make you slow down? No, no. And here I think drives the biggest point home between how TKN operates versus other things, I guess. So what happens with the way, with the theory that we use or have or model we use, et cetera, you see the police officer, okay, formulate an inference based off of what you see and then use that inference to inform your immediate behavior of slowing down. And so a lot of people, they skip that middle step. They think, I see the cop, the cop makes me slow down. In reality, I see the cop, I interpret that information as X, Y, and Z, and then I use that information to inform my decision to slow down. And we try and intervene as best we can in that middle step because we can do relatively little about the things you experience, okay? However, if we can become aware of that of that step where we make inferences, where we form beliefs, Well, then we can have a real impact on how you use the information you do have to make better decisions. That's the long answer about the Hawthorne effect and at least how we use it. That, okay, in reality, I mean, it's like if you think you're being watched, then you change what you do. It's right. probably the quick and dirty explanation. However, when you watch yourself, then you can be constructive with that.
0: And uh, you see the same sort of thing happen with like personal finances. I think there's like a lot of yes. core, like the similarities between nutrition and personal finances. A lot of people think in personal finance world, it's all like you got to know about stocks and ratios and blah blah. You know, but really, it's just like comes down to psychology. And they've one of the yeah. things you do in personal finance is like just track what you spend. Don't change anything, yep. just track. And then yep. from there you can start and like the Hawthorne effect comes in. And then you also learn information about why am I spending my money? Do I mm-hmm. did I really need to spend money on that? Then you start making decisions yes. based off that data.
1: Correct. And so you bring up a good point about that in insofar as also a lot of people kind of wonder like where did all of my bad spending habits come from? Where did all of my bad eating habits come from, and so forth? And you realize that just by moni- like just with self monitoring, you can find all of the you can make all those things moot because what causes a problem matters way less than what maintains it.
0: Gotcha. All right, so you're in this food clarity phase. People are measuring what they're eating, like so they can actually see, so they can't be like, I just eat a serving of peanut butter. They actually know. Mm. What a serving of peanut butter is. But then you're also tracking, okay, well, why, why, why did you eat? Like, were you feeling upset? Were you stressed? You're also tracking that. After you've gone through this phase, again, when there's no, you're not, there's no nothing prescriptive going on here. You start doing, you start making some changes, making some suggestions. So what what happens after establishing food clarity?
1: In a lot of instances. The Hawthorne effect ends up taking hold and people end up correcting or changing their their eating patterns over the course of the food clarity phase. And so practically speaking, that means, well, we can just continue on what you have been doing. We can make we could effectively make zero changes based off of the day that you provided because you already put yourself on the right track of your own accord.
0: Does that make sense? That makes sense. But again, you're not, you're not like giving like a you're probably not giving like a very specific meal plan. You're just saying, okay, let's look at what you're doing already. Maybe you make a nudge here and see if that does something. Yeah. It's a nudge. And I think, I mean, the Hawthorne effect can take, it can help out a lot with that. So for example, like there's been times where I've like, I I need to lose weight, but I I do, I, I track macros and sometimes I'll have a morning, like a Saturday morning. One of my favorite treats is to go over to quick trip and get a sausage, egg, cheese biscuit. It's really good. But it is like it is fortified with fat. Um, so I I eat it. Enriched. It's enriched with fat. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, like, I I know I'm gonna be like hungry like in just like 30 minutes after I finish this thing. Cause it's there's not doesn't really take up a lot of space. And so I realized, man, I'm I'm not gonna be able to eat that much. I'm gonna have to like, there's gonna be changes I'm gonna have to make somewhere else. Mm. Or I might have to be eat more satiating food, more like broccoli or you know, potatoes or something that's not laden with butter. So you start doing it naturally. Like you sort of figure yes. it out on your own.
1: You you take your finances and you translate them to things like calories, the same sort of premise with taking stock of what you have and allocating resources accordingly. Same exact principles.
0: Gotcha. How do you deal with people who like let's say they're trying to lose weight. So mm. they have to reduce calories. And sometimes you start feeling hungry. Mm. What do you do? Like, do you help, how do you help people with that? Where they're like, man, I'm just really hungry. It's like ten o'clock at night. I'm just starving. I've had that happen to me. Like, I just okay. want I want to eat, Go to the, I want to go to the cupboard and just like get a scoop of peanut butter, t- so my stomach just shuts up.
1: So you you present a great question that has idiosyncratic resolutions. A fancy way of saying each person kind of gets a a different approach. However, I can try and give you a a good understanding of how we could approach something like this. So if something like this comes up, I like to lean on irreverence, which is a fancy way of saying, well, like, let's try and make a joke of this situation as a way to provide us perspective in terms of making a better situation, in terms of making better decisions. So we can either make a joke of it, or we can just show it very little respect as a way to help calibrate our decision-making apparatus. So when somebody says, let's all throw you under the bus, when you say, I'm tired and stressed and want to eat a bunch of stuff and I have all these cravings, okay? So then we can have a conversation where I might ask the question, how do you deal with the tendency to want to smash somebody's face in and still manage to act polite? How do you deal with the tendency to want to rip a loud fart during somebody's big speech and manage to hold it in? Or how do you manage to deal with the tendency to want to skip work and show up anyway?
0: It's like willpower, so, self-control.
1: Essentially, yes. So to, to some degree... We, we incorporate tolerance. And so two factors dictate the maintenance of a plan under situations like this. And the first, most important factor, I consider tolerance, which operates exactly how it sounds the way the ability or capacity to maintain composure when you feel stressed. Okay. Which has trainability. Which becomes a different conversation. However, so the most important thing in the moment becomes exhibiting tolerance to the situation, dealing with it for a short period of time so that you can make a rational decision. Which means the second most important thing to consider in the grand scheme has to do with overcoming ambivalence. And so, a lot of, in other words, if you can manage your behavior in those other situations we just mentioned, in other contexts, which you do, then we already have sufficient evidence to suggest that you can continue to manage your behavior now in this situation. And so, what happens is when people manage their behavior in those other situations, like keeping yourself from punching somebody in the mouth, right? You create this sort of compound argument in your head, which I then try and I I try and work with a person to get them to form out loud. Where they state their preference and then compare that pref- preference to the desired outcome, and then we use that to drive sensible decisions. So, the I-, I would really like to rip a loud fart, and and I know that would distract from the from the speech and potentially embarrass me and the other person. So I'll keep it in. <laughs> and so you state your preference, recognize and tolerate your preference, and then compare that to the desired outcome. So in this case, the preference to sabotage yourself in some way, and you compare that to the desired outcome, and then you can make an informed decision, do I want to continue on with this or not? Okay. Do I want to rip a loud fart and cause a scene? I, I, I would like to rip a, a loud fart, and I know I'd cause a scene. Do I want to continue to do this? No. <laughs> and so for food, for instance, we can throw demandingness in here, which becomes easy when it comes to food, where someone might say, I must eat to live. Sure. Okay. Therefore, I must eat whenever I feel like it or else. And here's where things start to get interesting. So a lot of people have cravings that get worse over time or they intensify over time, especially as they continue on with diets. Okay. Basically, a lot of times cravings coexist with ambivalence and that ambivalence intensifies and protracts the craving. Essentially, wanting to eat a thing, just wanting to eat a thing presents a minor hassle anyone can deal with. If you want something and you realize it might hurt you, if you do it, then you move on with your life. However, if you start deliberating with yourself about whether you should do it or not, that ends up causing the problems. And so when people tend to label their issue as like an intense craving, I really think it presents itself more as a person prolonging their own misery by deliberating over what to do about the cravings. And so practically, this means making a decision. (laughs) And so decisions end up kind of obviating a lot of the problems people have associated with craving because the cravings exist and get worse because people wonder and argue with themselves, do I give in or not? When you could just say no and move on. Does that make
0: sense? That makes sense. All right. So, like, let's say some people eat because they're just tired, they want that's their their go to. Say, well, no. I'm not going to do like, don't, and don't debate it. And the same thing, if you're feeling hunger, I mean, I guess you have to kind of be tolerated. like, well, I'm going to be a little hungry. Like I'm going to feel some hunger pains at 10 o'clock at night. I can deal with that.
1: Yeah. A great way of putting it. I I have gathered enough evidence to know that I can deal with this mild hassle right now.
0: All right. So you have to, you have to yeah. get, get comfortable with discomfort.
1: Yeah. A little, a little essentially, bit. Essentially, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, so this is what's happening like in this phase, and, like this is what's happening in this phase two part. You're 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 working with a client, you're and you're helping them manage these these issues that pop up, right? And figuring out like ways that they can deal with it and mm. consulting them and coaching them, like, well, what what do you really have to eat peanut butter when you're feeling really, really hungry? Well, maybe not. Maybe the hunger will like that's the thing you talk about too in a lot of your, your your podcasts about the feelings. Like, don't like feelings can be like not very trustworthy and that's why sometimes like there's like a nutrition idea out there, intuitive eating, like just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Sometimes like you're that's, that's messed up. Like you're the feeling connection to your body is, is all out of whack. And so you might feel like you need to eat, but your body, you really don't. Uh,
1: Yes. Eating intuitively and finding success with that presupposes a balanced psycho emotive state all the time. Because if, at least the way that I interpret the term intuition, you can pretty much use synonymously with impulse. And so if somebody says impulsive eating, they know exactly what you mean,
0: right? Right. right.
1: However, if somebody says intuitive eating, that sounds fancier and different. However, intuition and impulse mean essentially the same thing. And so in a lot of instances, a lot of the clients that we have, I, I would consider recovering intuitive eaters, so to speak, because their intuitions effectively led them to me. <laughs> and so we just, we can make rational decisions with good information.
0: Right. And I mean, a lot of what you're doing is you're you're kind of, I mean, in a way you're, you're trying to retrain people, mm. like to, like the intuition. So the intuition, because like intu- it'd be nice to like, if you can just go on intuition, life's a lot easier, right? If you could just yeah. go, well, I, I feel like that. And it sounds like, you correct me if I'm wrong, like all the, you know, this food clarity and then this, you know, working with them on the second phase where you're trying to help them figure out, okay, what can you do when you have these issues? Like you're kind of retraining like an, like an intuition. So it's actually based in reason.
1: Exactly correct, my friend.
0: Yes. Another interesting part. So you, you go through phase one, phase two, but there's an, there's a third part that I've heard you talk about where there's a part where you actually start increasing calories, Right, say mm. someone's trying to lose weight and they've lost weight. Then you're like, well, no, we actually going to, we're, you're gonna eat more food and you're gonna actually gonna you might lose more body fat. And that people might hear, like, what? How does that mm. work? What's going on there?
1: Okay. So the, we can we can describe this in a few ways. However, a lot of it has to do with a lot of it does have to do with food choice. So, like you said. Earlier, like I, I really want to have this. I love Quick Trip. By the way, you you did reference Quick Trip, right? I did.
0: Yes, Quick Trip. I got okay, one. Okay, right. just
1: making sure that yes. we have alignment on Quick Trip here. That all in all, from a food volume standpoint, that sandwich represents a morsel, and <laughs> that you can take that five, six, seven hundred calories and turn it into a relative feast. And so, over time, you make better decisions about food choices to. Stay to get and stay satisfied with the food choices that you do make, which then ends up helping with things like cravings on the back end. Additionally, when you start to keep track of the amount of calories you consume, when we start adjusting a person down so that they may lose fat, we understand that essentially we all suck at measuring when we start we understand that. And so we start the values relatively low understanding that 99% of the time people end up eating more than they report because their measurement skills could use some could use some mastering. And so what ends up happening is that over time even though we we set we set the presumed calorie intake relatively low knowing that a person will most likely overeat because of measurement error. However, we account for that overeating to still be beneath a person's maintenance level. Does that make sense?
0: That makes sense, yes.
1: So that means that as a person continues to improve their measurement skills, they actually, even though they might report the same amount of calories they consume, they start consuming fewer calories over time because their measurement error declines.
0: Does that make sense? That makes sense, yes.
1: Okay, now accounting for that, We can start actually increasing a person's calories over time, and this ends up happening functionally for a few reasons. One, that we can increase the calories over time within the confines of the person's maintenance, which effectively means that you can eat one calorie under maintenance and still continue to lose fat, in theory, okay? Okay. And so if a person gets better at measuring over time, and we increase the amount of calories they consume over time then that means in terms of what they report, they report way more and what they do eat ends up matching much closer to what they report. And that, that accounts for a lot of the mathematical discrepancy. However, in terms of physiological discrepancies, we can account for things like thermogenesis, like your, your metabolic rate can go up a little bit for a variety of reasons. Food choices can also make a difference in terms of how efficient your digestion how efficient you digest the food, and one thing that people end up kind of neglecting in terms of these differences in food intake has to do with the fact that a person now has a much more balanced, healthy, active lifestyle. And so, we also keep track of activity, and as activity starts to incline, so then does your maintenance, which means that we can continue to increase the calories that you take in Understanding that your maintenance ends up going up for a variety of reasons, which allows us to kind of end a fat loss phase at a relatively high caloric load when under most circumstances, people's calories decline over time as their progress stalls. Does that make
0: sense? Yes, that makes sense.
1: Okay, so we try and, we try and start relatively low and end high where we end at what, you, at what would presumably be your new maintenance and, and that, that gives us a lot of options
0: it seems like it'd be a lot more enjoyable like knowing yes. that right because I like just know
1: more every week
0: <laughs> right yeah like that yeah. that's more motivating to stick with something ah
1: yes I get to yes. eat more because in, in a lot of other situations you kind of get scared to check in like oh are they gonna chop it all away what do I do do I do I fudge my information next you know it, it ends up becoming a really strange sort of like countdown to doomsday sort of situation when when we really present it as well we can start lower and it does kind of suck for a minute and that's okay
0: <laughs> right you can <laughs> deal with that because
1: as we right we can deal with it we have the we have the evidence we can deal with it and over time we just we just add a little bit more and a little bit more until eventually like your calorie to body weight ratio ends up changing dramatically
0: that's cool yeah so i'm curious how do you measure or track results with clients without making them obsess too much about it. It seems like you're not your your goal is to not make people obsess about this stuff too much. Yeah. So how agreed. do you track results? Are you is it like a weekly weigh-in?
1: So I I have people check in once per week, and then they can check in more often if they please. The any sort of preoccupations a person has with any measurements they they take, we deal with on a on a person-to-person basis. However, when we when we kind of go over the function of measuring, an easy way to say this, a lot of people have preoccupation with measuring for various reasons. Okay, and for that reason, they end up opting opting for for other possible programs, consultants, coaches, etc. That kind of offer a no tracking approach. Have you heard of something like this?
0: I've never. I guess no. intuitive
1: eating. Intuitive, okay, intuitive eating intuitive, might be
0: one. Yeah, that'd be one. Sure.
1: Okay. Or, or maybe maybe measuring, and like the people people get scared of a scale. Okay, I'll just use that as an example. So I I kind of come at it from a rational perspective of, under any circumstance, whether you whether you gain, whether you lose, whether you do a program, whether you're doing your own thing, you always measure and track. You always measure and track, no matter what. And so. If you, if you intend to measure and track, or rather, if you measure and track anyway, it makes the most sense to measure and track with the most accurate information possible. So how do I explain this in a way that makes sense? People measured before they started, <laughs> they just measured in a different way. They measured using their eyeballs. They measured using their gut. They measured using their, their clothes. They measured with how they looked in the mirror. They measured with a cup. They measured with a spoon. They measured with their thumb. They measured with how good and how bad they felt. And under any circumstances, before, during, or after a program, you use some measurement system to help inform your decisions. Does that make sense? That makes sense, yes. And so if a person makes themselves crazy, if a person claims to make themselves crazy by virtue of measuring, it becomes a pretty straightforward conversation of, well, you measured before, you just measured in a different way, in a way that led you down a path that, that you had a problem with. And so if you measure regardless... Because, that, because humans make decisions based off of the measurements they make, now the difference becomes well, may as well use something ac- more accurate and more precise relative to the other way I measured before.
0: That, that makes sense. And, and I mean, how do you also deal with it? I mean, when you're working with a client and they're, I think a lot of people, when they go to this expectation with any project, they think like success is going to be linear. Like, you'll just like, mm. Every week, but as we've talked about, the body is a complex. There's a, there's psychological components, there's physiological components going on. They're all working together. Your circumstances are constantly changing, so weight loss typically isn't linear. Mm, um, how do you how do you help a client go work through that? If they think they have this mindset, it's got to. If I'm not losing Excellent. a pound a week, then something's, something's wrong.
1: Right. So the the first aspect of that has to do with the person's demandingness. I must lose weight or else, and that or else allows a person to justify all sorts of wacky, self sabotaging behaviors that ultimately led them to us. And so having a having continuous, really continuous check ins with what sort of demands are we making of ourselves, we can help attenuate that sort of mindset of I must lose weight or else. So that. I think accomplishes a big bulk of it um, because what you, you reference essentially what I consider textbook form of demandingness and that demandingness leads to all sorts of wacky behaviors and emotional upset. So we can address the demandingness from a philosophical side and from a practical side, in terms of consulting, it means reinforcing and, and giving credit to actions instead of outcomes, and so it has less to do with, did I lose weight this week? And more to do with, did all the decisions I, make this, I made this week make sense for what I wanted? And if that ends up checking out, then the, the weight loss or whatever ends up kind of happening as a side effect. And so we have this sort of mantra, a little bit on the front end, but mostly on the back end, that having what we want comes as a side effect of becoming the sort of person it takes to get it. And so we focus way more on the thoughts we have and the decisions we make rather than our outcomes, because we have influence over the thoughts we have and the decisions that we make. And with an operational understanding that outcomes will come over time or that they are nonlinear or stochastic, whatever fancy word you want to use, it makes the most sense to, to perform the gut check every week and ask ourselves... Of all the decisions I made, did I make decisions in a way that helped me become the person it takes? Does that make sense?
0: No, that makes sense. And I've seen that not only in my nutrition, but like my, my, um, my weight training. There'll be mm-hmm. some weeks where you're just like, man, 545 pounds just feels really light. <laughs> it's like, wow. And then the, you go in the next week and you can't even pull 405 off the floor during your warm up and you're like what happened but but i mean but then you know i have a coach he's like just just, try, just do the do the training do what you can it'll be okay in the long term and it, it he's always right like just if you do it it'll be fine in, in the long term
1: yeah yep and so it and, and in a lot of cases it ends up again assessing a demand like i must lift 545 or else i give myself permission to act poopy yeah. well <laughs> It, the reality is that why, why you failed your lift, why you missed the lift, means very little in, in the real world relative to how I keep upsetting myself about missing a lift right now.
0: <laughs> right, because if right. I
1: keep doing this, I may cause way more issues in the future.
0: No, it's true. All right. So this is kind of recap here. So first part of this is again food clarity, like measuring what you actually and you make a good point. Like we're already measuring, even if you're not using a, a tablespoon or a scale, you're probably already measuring your food, eyeballing it. So instead of doing that, like get an actual idea, like use, know what you're actually going in your body by doing that. You can start making changes naturally just in that part. But then uh, eventually you'll you'll want to make uh, adjustments. So you want to lose weight, but you don't want to make drastic things where you're heavily, you know, limiting yourself what you can eat. And then eventually you want to get to the point where you can actually start increasing calories because there's been changes in your activity level and your metabolism that you can actually consume more food, feel satiated and still still lose weight. and, and then, But then along the way, it's managing the like the psychological component of nutrition. And I think the big takeaway there um, from our, listening to you is like, you're going to have to be okay with being hungry. You can do it. It's going to stink for a little bit, but that's okay. You have resources to overcome that.
1: And that's okay. <laughs>
0: yes. And that's okay. Exactly. Well, Trevor, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work?
1: The best thing you could do is go to trevorcashynutrition.com. And you can follow me on the Instagrams and the Facebooks. And I have a public Facebook group called The Best Nutrition Group Ever that I will send you a link to.
0: The Best Nutrition Group Ever. I like it. All right, Dr. Cashy, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My guest today is Dr. Trevor Cashy. He's the owner of Trevor Cashy Nutrition. You can find out more information about his work at his website, trevercashynutrition.com. Also, check out our show notes at slash cashy, where you can find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to use a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you Think we'll get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it.